Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Good morning, everyone. We're finishing up a series called Dreams of Generations this morning. And a couple weeks ago, I was down in Washington, D.C. for a, a network part of our network uh, conference and uh, found myself with a bit of free time alone in a big city with lots to do. And if you have little kids, you realize just how rare of an occasion that is. And so I decided I was going to go to a museum, like a real museum for adults. Not, you know, ones where you can't touch everything. Uh, so I'm in a cafe doing a little bit of work and I, I look up free art galleries in, in DC. And the only one that I could find for some reason in that moment was the, the portrait gallery, the national portrait gallery. And I was kind of like, ah, portraits, you know, doesn't sound very exciting, but it was free and it was close. So I hopped on a little electric scooter and made my way there. And I go in there, and the first exhibit is called um, Out of Many. It's a reference to the, the at pluribus unum from our, you know, the, the, the money that's out of many, one. And it, it was portraits of significant figures in the history of this nation. And so I'm standing before all of these portraits, and... It dawned on me that, okay, between these ornate frames, these portraits represented a life. This was a person's face, image, that they commissioned, presented themselves in the way that they wanted generations to come to remember them, to think of them. And so... It was an entire human life represented in this picture with all its dreams, all its hopes, all its suffering. And for some reason, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, for some reason, there's something even more real and human about a painted portrait even than a photo. Maybe it's because, you know, a human hand has been, you know, doing the painting. But um, I'm looking at the paintings And next to the paintings, I was trying my best to read the art before I cheated and read the plaques next to it. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. And so, but eventually I started reading the plaques. And the plaques, these little things next to the paintings, are put there by the museum to try and give context to what you're looking at, to the people that you're looking at. So for instance, I stood before the portrait of John Winthrop, He's one of the founding Puritans of the Massachusetts colony. Uh, He was a man of faith that fled uh, England for the sake of religious freedom. And yet, so the plaque says all that, and, and and yet it said he's a lawyer. He was a lawyer that made sure that only strict Puritanism could be practiced in this new colony. So he flees England for religious freedom and institutes a strict uh, expression of religious freedom you know, uh, faith in this new colony. I stand before Benjamin Franklin, 
founding father of the nation. He's on our money, um, a nation that he helped found, priding itself on freedom. He was a printer, a very successful printer before he became a politician. And he actually printed um, pamphlets for the abolitionist movement. His wife loved them so much, she hung some of them up on their, the walls of their house. And yet, Benjamin Franklin himself was a slave owner. And so, I'm reading all these paintings, I'm, I'm reading all the plaques, and one after another, this pattern starts to emerge. Because one after another, here were these individuals who had, they, the reason they were hung on these walls in the National Portrait Gallery in this particular exhibit was because they were people who had dreamed big dreams. They were people who had gone out and tried to improve the world in the best way that they knew how. And in many ways, the reason that they're on those walls is because we see them in in the history of our nation as people that embody something about the spirit of this country. They've become emblems of vision and virtue for generations. And yet... Even though all of that was true, every single one of them was also a deeply flawed individual. A person who, despite all their hopes and dreams and virtues, was also... Even as they dreamed big dreams and went out and created things that we are grateful for today, they also unwittingly worked their own flaws into the things that they designed. And so I began to see... I began to really enjoy it, <laughs> walking through and seeing these pictures. And I began to, it began to dawn on me. The Lord gave me an epiphany of, Ian, this is why I've brought you here, is to show me something about this very series that we're doing right now. Um, looking at dreams of generations. So we started this series, um, and we're, we're still in, closing today, the season in the church calendar called Epiphany. And I shared that the word of the Lord, I believe, for us this year is, Proactivating dreams of generations. And so the question is, what does that look like? And we've been looking at that question in the book of Genesis as we've been following through the generations of this family of faith uh, from Abraham and his son and grandsons. And so Genesis, in the same way as those portraits in the gallery, they, it offers us these literary portraits of patriarchs, of these founding uh, men and women um, of our faith. They're, they're architects, our ancestors in the spirit. And it's their faith in the dream of God, the dream that God promised to them. That's the reason why we're here today, thousands of years on. And so we look back to them as those founders and architects and patriarchs. And yet, if there's one thing you can't miss as you're reading the book of Genesis is that these are also deeply flawed people. You just, you just think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all right? Now think about church today, all right? If you were interviewing any one of these guys, even to be on the worship team, there'd be some serious red flags, right? You did what, Abraham? You had a child with your mistress, right? I mean, just one after the other. And so if there's one message that we don't get from, from, from Genesis, it's that, um, you know, uh, these are perfect and, and uh, great human beings that deserve to be emulated in every aspect of their lives. What we get is a sense of the utter faithfulness of God. 
All right? And so this is, these are the people that God selects. These are the ones that, he God, that, that God uses. And so this is the story that we've been given that the Holy Spirit um, made sure that was passed down in Scripture. This is the story that we have in order to teach us about generational transfer, about dreaming the dream of God from generation to generation. So there is so much for us to learn here. We've only just scratched the surface in the few weeks that we've been looking at that. But today we're going to close the series um, and we're going to look at the person of Isaac. All right, Genesis 26, and Isaac only gets one chapter, so we're going to read most of it because I think it's the least we can do for the guy. All right, (laughs) Genesis 26, verses 1 to 25, and it says... Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statues, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. She was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possession of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug, in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you're much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, which means opposition, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that. So he called its name Sitna, which means uh, um, dissension, I think. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, 
I am the God of Abraham, your father, Abraham's sake. So he built there an altar and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. This is the word of the Lord. So Isaac gets one single chapter dedicated to him. And the most exciting thing that happens to him is he digs some wells. Wow. (laughs) Right? What in the world is going on here? Well, there's a few things that the author's trying to draw our attention to in this story. And if you've ever read the book of Genesis before, if you've been following along as we've been uh, studying this, if you read it just like a normal book, um, you would immediately feel as though you're reminded of something you've already read. This sounds a lot like something that came before, and you're right, because it's happened twice before. In chapter 12, Abraham faced a famine. He went south to Egypt to find provision. He was afraid. He lies about his wife. He puts her in danger. He makes himself rich. Everyone around him begins to suffer, and he's politely asked to leave. (laughs) Then again, in chapter 20, Abraham goes south this time to the land of the Philistines. And he was afraid. He lies about his wife. He puts her in danger. He makes himself rich. Everyone around him begins to suffer. He's given gifts this time in order to encourage him to leave. (laughs) So now we fast forward to chapter 26. And 75 years later, we find Isaac, his son, following the exact same pattern. Isaac, the son of the promise, in the same exact position. And there's, there's no mistake here that the author is very, very deliberately mirroring these previous stories. That's why at the beginning, he, he um, even alerts our attention that this was a different famine than when, when Abraham, just like his father, faces a famine. He heads south. He responds in fear. He lies about his wife. He gets rich. He causes distress. And he's asked to leave. So what, what's the point of repeating this story, you think? What more do we learn that we didn't learn through Abraham going through this? Well, the question that this brings up for me, all right, as we're talking about redreaming the dream of God in a new generation, is I think this passage teaches us two things of what, about what that doesn't mean, two things about what redreaming the dream does not mean for us, And one thing, at least one thing, that it teaches, um, that it does teach us. All right? So the first thing we see here, two things that it does not mean. First of all, redreaming the dream does not equals settling for safety, comfort, and ease. Redreaming the dream does not equals settling for safety, comfort, and ease. So the first thing that jumps out to you from this passage is, you know, Isaac is facing the exact same situation. And he responds in exactly the same way that his father did. He goes south to Egypt. And that was the natural thing to do. It was natural because Egypt, with the River Nile, uh, it always flooded every year, no matter how dry it got. And so there was, um, there was always food to be found in Egypt. But it was also what his father had done. So this is, this is what Isaac had grown up doing in such situations. All right? And so he's just doing what he knows to do. And yet God stops him and says, Do not go to Egypt. Isaac, don't do the conventional thing. 
Don't go the way your family went before. Listen to my voice. All right? And so, and then God goes on to reiterate the dream, the promise that he'd given to Abraham, to Isaac again. And to his credit, Isaac responds. He goes the other way. He, he, he seems to head north from where he was last living, into the land of the Philistines. Um, and so it seems like he's trying to be faithful. He's trying to do the right thing. But there's a, there's a little nuance in the text here that's easy to pass over. It's this thing. In verse 2, God uses a word um, which means to camp in a place. Some translations, in some of your translations will say, go to this place for a time. Then in verse 3, it says, sojourn in this place. In other words, uh, be an immigrant in this place. Don't settle down there. And what we're told in verse 5 is exactly that Isaac settled down there. Isaac settled. And there's an implication of permanence here. So when God calls Abraham in chapter 12, he calls him to go to leave his father and, and his kin and his nation to go to the place where God would show him. He doesn't even tell him where it's going to be at, at first. And he trusted God and went. And that is the, the marker of his faith, right? And so if you remember back to the, the, the first message in this series, that was deliberately contrasted against chapter 11, where you have the Tower of Babel, and it says the people, rather than going out, they settled in one particular place and began to accumulate wealth and power and influence for themselves, Right? And so what we're seeing here, again, in chapter 26, is the author taking us back to that same contrast. He's very deliberately reminding us of this. And again, as we should expect from that contrast, Isaac's settling down immediately begins to get him in trouble. He ends up doing exactly, even though he listened to God and didn't go south, he ends up doing exactly the same thing as his father did, making the same exact mistake, lying about his wife being his sister, because he's afraid. They might kill me because my wife is so beautiful. And so there's, there's a fear for his safety. Um, you know, you might even want to be generous to him and say, well, he's the, he's the breadwinner. He's the protector of the family. You know, he has... Good reason to be afraid for his life, because if he goes, then, you know, they're all going to suffer. Now, all right, so um, if you notice in Abraham's, uh, when Abraham faced this, Pharaoh and then Abimelech actually take Sarah. They, they take her, right, and, and want to court her and marry her. In this situation, it doesn't seem like anyone's really after Rebecca. He's, he's kind of just paranoid, all it says is that they asked him about her. Like, who's this? And he lies, right? Then notice, they've been there for quite a long time until Abimelech notices. And, and it says in, in the ESV translation, it says they were laughing together. It's actually, that's a little bit of a sugarcoat. It's actually, he was fondling her in public. So public that the king is able to see it. I mean, like, what, what are you doing, Isaac? Right? And so... I don't know. I just, I just see Isaac. Um, I, I don't see him in a particularly flattering light in this passage. He seems a little bit self-seeking. Um, and here's the thing. In that, when you begin to see all that, I, I think what's to me a very relatable picture begins to emerge about this, this child of promise. Isaac is living on borrowed faithfulness. 
Isaac is living and, and eating the fat and the, the harvest of the faithfulness of his father. And so I've entitled this message, Living on Borrowed Faithfulness. And so Isaac has been handed all of his father's estate, and not only that, but his promises from God. And it says, well, I think the picture we get here is living on borrowed faithfulness. He's, he's kind of choosing the path of least resistance. I don't think his fear is for his life. I don't think it's, his, it's for his wife's life, clearly. Um, it seems like it's more about a fear of losing his comfort, a fear of losing the familiar and the easy. And the reason I find this relatable is I think this is always part of the trap of the second generation that's inheriting something, right? If you read, um, there's, there's a lot of Silicon Valley billionaires who, um, it, it, I don't know if you've read about this, who, uh, especially the tech ones that are trying to keep their kids away from the tech that they actually created. <laughs> um, but not only that, um, billionaires talk about, I'm sure millionaires deal with this too, uh, but especially billionaires, that they're actually the reason that many of them have become as wealthy as they have is because they didn't necessarily come from that. They, they faced adversity. They were, you know, like really determined, ambitious people, but then it comes to their kids and they realize their kids have everything handed to them and they actually have to concoct some adversity and inject it into their kids' lives to try and teach them what they themselves learned. But it's actually, you know, it's, it's kind of artificial, (laughs) right? And so, it's not just billionaires that have to deal with that. If you think about, you know, the portraits in that gallery I was in, here are all these people that dreamed a dream and, and you know, shaped the nation that, that we now benefit from their work and from their foresight. Um, they were people uh, that, that had vision to give the next generation something uh, greater than, the, than what they had. And we've inherited their labor. And... People still believe in the American dream. Um, But I think what we've ended up doing is turning the American dream into a synonym for comfort and safety and ease. And so, in a way, we kind of are living the dream. You know, the dream is going to Walmart in your pajamas. (laughs) The place where you can get everything, it's on the shelf, and you don't even have to dress up to go there. Safety, comfort, ease, right? And so... (laughs) And so this is, you know, as we're talking about this as a church, my, this is my plea to us, NC4. May we not settle for a, a dream of mere comfort, mere ease, of mere safety. We are called to so much more. We're actually not called to settle down, to settle for those things. God's called us to continue moving. We have to continually remember from generation to generation that we are sojourners. We're we're nomads following God, not settling down for comfort and ease and safety. And so that's kind of one side of the equation. And even as I warn us of that error, we have to turn to the other side of the error, which is the second thing that we learn about uh, what redreaming is not. Here's the second thing. Redreaming the dream does not equals tearing down the past. 
Redreaming the dream does not equal tearing down the past. So you have to notice that Isaac, in one sense, he, you know, he is trying to be faithful. On the other hand, he's trying to preserve his comfort and ease. Um, and he ends up making his father's mistakes. But here's the thing. Here's the contrast is that Abraham, in one sense, kind of didn't know any better, right? He was making those mistakes fresh. Isaac should have known better. He saw his father do it, and he saw what that led to. Um, Abraham also seemed to be responding to real threats. So in a way, I think Isaac's error is worse because he should have learned from the example of his father's mistakes. Um, In the process of generational transfer, I think every generation wants to dream its own dream, wants to be their own you know, man and woman wants to be their own person. And so I think a natural tendency as one generation passes to the other is that the current one looks back in judgment on the previous one. We could never be like them. We could never be like those people. And it looks back in judgment. And I think the story that we're reading here, it actually encourages us that we need to have humility We need to have grace looking back to the generations that went before us. Because guess what? We're also going to make mistakes. We're actually going to make some of the same mistakes, even though we should know better. But we'll make these exact same mistakes. And then on the the other side, having, having grace to generations that went before, but having humility towards our own plans, our own dreams, our own ambitions. And so... Abraham had a flaw that he seems to have passed on to his son. And there's generational patterns that you can observe there. And it's, I think in the same way, you know, I mean, our society is rife with this right now. It's easy to look back at those who've gone before us from our perspective, knowing what we know, and to judge what's gone before, to criticize the flaws. And, And in one sense, that's good because it's showing that we're learning right? Actually, Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10 says about, you know, these things in Genesis and Exodus, it says these things happened as examples to warn us. But then it also says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. So it's both, right? We are meant to learn from it. Um, And yet, it's also meant to give us a humility, uh, towards ourselves and a grace towards those who have gone before. So it was good that Isaac didn't go the exact same way. He didn't go to Egypt like his father did, but he also needed a humility. And so we need to learn from those that have gone before us, but we also need to have our own humility in terms of what we're planning to go ahead and build because just as previous generations dreamed big and built great things but also worked their flaws into it, everything that's of intentions want to build, we will also build our flaws into them. And so there's humility that has to come with it. And, and God's grace covers all of it. <laughs> he chooses to use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And so... That's kind of a sobering reality. And I think it's something that every, every new parent quickly begins to learn. You know, you, you, become a good, you become a parent and you kind of think, well, man, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, 
I have the benefit of learning from all my parents, you know, mistakes that they did on me. So now I'm going to correct all that and I'm going to do it right. And you quickly begin to realize I'm going to mess my kids up too, just in different ways. And that's, it's such a, it's such a horrible feeling. But you know what? It makes you turn to the grace of God. It, it gives you humility that actually, that, that I think can be healing towards your kids because you can show the vulnerability of, of being able to say, kids, would you forgive me for this? Would you, you know, it, it actually can be a way of learning grace together as a family. So redreaming the dream, it doesn't mean just tearing down the ones that went before us. It also doesn't mean glossing over their faults. Yes, we should learn from them, but we also need to give them grace, just like we also will need grace. Okay, so two things that redreaming the dream does not mean. It doesn't mean just maintaining the status quo and settling for safety, comfort, and ease. It also doesn't mean swinging to the other side and just tearing down everything that went before. I think what what this passage teaches us is that redreaming the dream means going out on our own limb. All right, what do I mean by that? Well, there came a time, this is the moment in Isaac's life where I'm Abraham's son. That? (laughs) Abimelech, you know, you think about it. Abimelech has to be like, really? This again? This same family again? doing the same stuff, you know, and, and, and the people um, clearly get sick of him. They, he gets so rich, they start uh, becoming jealous. They start stopping up the wells, which is actually a very, very serious thing um, in an arid part of the world, um, in any part of the world, really. So verse 16, he is politely asked to vacate the region, um, and he moves again, and then what happens? he begins reclaiming his father's old wells, right? And he gives them the same names that Abraham had given them. And scholars point out that what's happening here is actually, it's most likely this is a territory claim. He's actually going to these wells and saying, yep, he's planting his his marker and saying, yep, this is our families. This belongs to us. And so what's happening here is he's been forced to move. He's still trying to settle, to plant roots, to say, this is our land. Now, he'd been promised the land, right? So it's understandable in a way, and yet, that's not what God had told him to do. And so, you know, I, I don't, I've heard the only, I've heard messages on this passage about, you know, redigging the ancient wells and unstopping the things that, and that's good. Um, we do need to do that. Uh, but I, I don't think actually what's happening here is, is meant to be a positive thing of what Isaac's doing, because it doesn't seem to go very well for him, right? You know, the names that he gives them, the first name is dispute. This, the next one is opposition. Uh, they sound like bars that lawyers would go to or something, right? <laughs> or like metalheads. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know if you caught this in the passage. There's a shift that happens with the third well, all right? And it, it, this was pointed out to me. There's a, a video by Rabbi David Foreman uh, uh, who has some great materials on, on the, uh, the Torah. Uh, verse 22, it says, Isaac moved on from there. 
all right? And the word, you don't get this till you, you, know, you open up a concordance and look at this, but um, that particular word is only used one other time in the whole Torah. And it's used in chapter 12, 12, 8, right after God promises the land uh, and the children to Abraham for the first time. It says Abraham removed himself from there to a mountain to worship. And so you might think, all right, well, so what? It's a pretty common word, um, seems like, but actually it's only used twice. And the two stories parallel each other so closely that you have, to, you have to perk up attention when you hear that kind of thing, all right? So right after God promises his dream to Abraham, he responds not by settling down, but by going, right? He sojourns, he travels, he removes himself. He realizes that this land, it's promised to him, but it's not his yet. He hears the promise and he responds and he goes, right? And so right here in, in, at that third well, this seems to be the moment where Isaac begins to see that too, where all of a sudden that same word that was used of his father is now used of Isaac. He removes himself from there. He goes, he travels. He uproots himself to follow what God had said. And now he's no longer trying to settle and plant roots. And and if I could just stretch the roots metaphor a little further, it's like he's revisiting the the tree, his family tree, but now he's saying, okay, I'm going to go out on my own limb now the same family tree of this, this family of faith and promise, we need to start a new branch. That he begins to move not out of fear, but out of faith. And that is where the well is called, the Lord has made room for us, Rehoboth. That is where he begins to discover that his true good, his true safety, his true comfort is not in God's gifts, it's in God himself. This is where he begins to learn for himself that God is in fact trustworthy. That God will in fact make good on his promises and Isaac doesn't have to make it happen for himself. And so this is where he meets God for the first time for himself. And if you you notice, this is where the Lord appears to him and Isaac actually worships for the first time. He builds an altar and it says he called upon the name of the Lord. And notice it says he didn't settle there. It says he pitched his tent. So this is Isaac finally getting it. He's trusting God for himself now. And just as I begin to close, what what this is just deeply speaking to me for us in this season is that we're called to redream the dream for a new generation. And it's, it's it's not starting from scratch. It's not judging the past. It's also not, you know, just settling with what we know. If we try and stay in the same places, as long as we try to settle... I feel like the Lord's saying, we're just living on borrowed faithfulness. If you continue to settle and and stay and try and make your your permanent home based on the work of a previous generation, all you're doing is living on their faithfulness. It's not until you branch out and follow God uh, um, um, on your own limb, taking a risk of faith on what he's saying now that we begin 
to discover his faithfulness for this generation, where we begin to discover and gain our own list of the past. We can't live on the obedience. I can't live on the obedience of my parents or my, my, my grandparents. And the same way this church, we love and we honor our parents and grandparents in the faith in this church. And yet, for those of us who are the kids receiving the inheritance, we can't just live on that. We can't live on that borrowed faithfulness. And so we have to branch out to encounter the goodness and faithfulness of God for ourselves. And that necessarily, just like it meant for, for, uh, for Isaac, it means digging a new well in a different place. It means new strategies, new places, new partnerships, new risks of faith with the humility of knowing that, yeah, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to make some old mistakes that we should have known better. <laughs> we're going to make some new mistakes that our kids are going to have to learn from. We'll encounter resistance. And yet, if we don't learn to trust God anew, afresh, then we're, not, we're simply not going to meet him for ourselves. Without that, without Isaac doing that and branching out in faith for himself, he doesn't meet God, and guess what? The story doesn't move forward. There would be no passing it on to Jacob and, and his descendants if Isaac had not done this in this moment. Abraham wasn't around anymore to lean on. Isaac had to step out in faith for himself. And so I want to invite the, the, the worship teams back up um, just to, to, to close together. Um, and I, I shared at the beginning of this year that our, uh, our strategy for the year is redreaming the dream and so it doesn't mean settling down in safety and comfort and ease. It doesn't mean, mean maintaining the status quo. It also doesn't mean looking back in judgment and, and change for the sake of change. It means a new generation returning to the same family tree, the same sap of, of faith and life that, that, that birthed us and branching out on a new limb where we have to, we're, we're put in a position where we have to trust God for ourselves. And so that's why we said redreaming the dream, restructuring for innovation, and recapturing a pioneering spirit. You guys can begin to play as I'm just closing out here. Um, and the verse that comes to me just as a, as a, as a challenge um, that actually the Lord gave me 12 years ago when I was just beginning, uh, it's hard to believe 12 years, but 12 years ago as, as Selena and I were just beginning a, a life on our own uh, in, in vocational ministry, um, the Lord gave me this verse in Hebrews that's kind of become my, my exhortation from the Lord whenever I'm tempted to settle down in comfort and ease. It's Hebrews 13, 12 to 14, which says, So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp. And this, we do have this scripture to put up. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. And this is the thing that reminds me of Isaac. For here we have, uh, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. 
Here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. And so I just want to pose a couple questions to you for you to reflect on um, for yourself in this season of, of what the Lord's doing as a whole church, but what the Lord might be doing in your life as part of that story. Where might you have begun to settle down into familiar comfort rather than pursuing the promise of God over your life? That's the first question. Where have you begun to settle down into familiar comfort rather than pursuing the promise? Secondly, in what ways have you lacked grace for generations past or lacked humility towards your own dreams? Some of us may need to have some new, new grace for our parents, for our, the people that raised us or went before us. And also humility towards ourselves and and what we might want to achieve. And thirdly, where do you need to pick up camp and get moving to trust God once again with the promises that you've been given? Where and what part of your life do you need to pick up camp and get moving to trust God once again with the promises that you've been given? And if you're struggling to write those down, you can go on our Version app and they're, they're in there in the notes uh, for, for today's service. Um, why don't we just uh, stand together and close in prayer? Father God, as we bring this season of epiphany, the season where we're reflecting on, on your glory and the dream of your glory throughout generations, Lord, as that season comes to a close and we move into the season of Lent, uh, starting in Ash Wednesday this week, this new season of repentance and renewal. Lord God, would you remind us, remind our hearts that our hopes, our dreams, as well as our fears and our failures, Lord, they all belong in the same place. It's at the foot of the cross and our failures and our mistakes, Lord, and place them at your feet. Give them to you. And Lord God, this morning, as we reflect on this story of Isaac, we come in humility, knowing that it was our sins just as much as anyone else's, any other generations that Lord Jesus put you on that cross. And so we too must repent and turn and continue to turn to you. So Lord, we, we submit our fears, our failures, our mistakes. Oh, Jesus, we give them to you again this morning. And Lord, we also recognize that we're able to come in boldness because it's that same cross, the the, the shame that you endured on the cross. You did it so that those promises that were given to Abraham and Isaac could also be ours, so that we would be made part of that family of promise and the descendants in the spirit of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all their family. And so because those promises belong to us now too, they are our inheritance. And so Lord God, would you keep us from settling for lesser dreams, lesser comforts of mere safety, of mere ease, 
Lord, we believe this morning, we stake our faith on the truth that here we have no lasting city, but we look to the city that is to come. The city of God that belongs to us by faith, Lord God, where you are king and we reign with you as your sons and daughters. Fill us with faith and boldness to pursue your glory, to redream the dream in our generation, Lord God, and to glorify you with everything that we think, do, and say. Lord, we pray this. We submit it to you in faith, and we pray it over us as a church and over us as families and individuals this year. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.